Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. <clears throat> Today, I wanted to talk about uh, the first two verses, Genesis chapter 1. So, uh, this is a bit of a deep dive on Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. So, here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Bible is clear. God created the heavens and the earth. Furthermore, God did it without the involvement or the presence of any other god or goddess. This holy scripture will highlight as the story unfolds from Genesis to Revelation, God exists and he acted in creation as the eternal trinity. One God Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there is no rival. When it came to be that creation was brought about, God did it. And God did it peacefully. The account of creation in Genesis 1 is orderly. It's peaceful. And this is especially important in contrast with the accounts of the ancient Near East, ancient Mesopotamia, Egypt, because these accounts always involve some kind of war, death, multiplicity of the gods. There, there is chaos and confusion reigning until one of the gods rises above them all and orders it all. That is not the case in the scripture as we look at the account of creation. It's God. There. There's no conflict. There's no rivalry. There's no multiplicity. We're told that Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Now, I will say this. The word Elohim in Hebrew is plural for the word El. El meaning God in singular. Elohim meaning gods or holy ones, holy things. However, the verbs in this short text of Genesis 1 and 2, while they use Elohim as a plural noun, all of the verbs are used in the singular construct. And so what we come to understand about the Hebrew language and the way Hebrew forms it, its, its uses of certain things is at times, Hebrew can use plural forms of a singular subject in order to place an emphasis on the importance of that subject. In this case, God. So while the noun for God is Elohim, and it is a plural noun, all of the verbs in supporting text read in the singular, which indicates that we're talking about one God who happens to be incredibly important. And this will be the case throughout our Old Testament texts, throughout the Hebrew Bible, throughout the First Testament, whatever nomenclature you want to put there. The, the, the consistency is there. there. There is the use of Elohim, which is a plural noun, but in its constructs talking about God in the Hebrew scripture, it's used with singular verbs or singular modifiers or singular pronoun antecedent relationships. It's always singular besides the use of Elohim. And what we come to understand is that the singular emphasis with the plural noun is a way of emphasizing the importance of Elohim. I think there's also a really deep 
Christian theological irony in the use of Elohim with singular verbs and supporting pronouns throughout our First Testament text. Uh, we may not be able to say it um, was sort of an intentional subtle hint toward Trinitarian understandings of God in the First Testament because of the understandings of the authors and the theological development that we see tracing out. But I don't think it's beyond the Holy Spirit to inspire the authors to use singular formations with a plural Elohim as a way to communicate deeper truth as we meditate on the scripture. In other words, I think the Spirit inspiring the text might be up to something. God is singular. But God is three persons. One God, three persons. I just think there's a there's an odd theological irony in the use of the plural noun with all of the singular formations that go around it, highlighting just in the linguistics the tension of one God, three persons, present in the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Something else we notice in this two-verse text is the presence of the heaven and the earth, the heavens and the earth. And by the time we get to the end of verse 2, the heavens and the earth are in place, it seems. It happens to be the case that the earth is covered in water. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters, over the face of the deep. But it seems that the earth is there, it's just covered in water. And in fact, what we find as we go through the days, as, as we watch that out, it isn't that God necessarily manufactures dry land, but that he reveals it by doing things with the waters that were there in verse 2. So when we are told that the earth was without form and the darkness was over the face of the deep or the face of the waters, depending on your translation, we note that the was in use here is used in the perfect tense. Now, perfect tense indicates a finished action, a complete action with ongoing consequence or consequences for the future. So the creation of the earth, formless and being covered with water, is the way that the earth was as a completed step, although not the way that it would remain. And what is told to us as the unfolding story of Genesis 1, beginning in verse 3, is a description of what God is going to do with the earth as it exists in this formless and watery state. So although the scripture has not unfolded the organization or the ready-for-living status of the earth. It is important to note that the earth is there, and it has been created along with the heavens. I believe it's also important to note that the day and night have not been created yet. We don't have light and darkness and the periods of time that mark the light and the dark. We don't have day and night yet. But we do have the heavens and the earth. So this leaves us with a couple of opinions and options for understanding the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1. Uh, first, Genesis 1, 1 through 2 is a summative statement of what we are about to read in Genesis 1, 3 through 2, 3. Or in a way, it sort of provides us with the overview of what God is about to do in the detailed text that follows. Or the second option is Genesis 1, 1 through 2 is a section of the story of creation that begins and ends prior to the rest of the story in 1 verse 3 through 2 verse 3, the seven days. 
So we can either say that Genesis 1, 1 through 2, has introduced to us the big picture of what God is going to do in what follows, or we can say that Genesis 1, 1 through 2 is the first movement of God's creation, and what follows is God's work in it in order to make it what we know today through the course of his seven days of creation, including his Sabbath rest of the seventh day. I prefer to read Genesis 1 and 2 as telling us that God made the heavens and the earth covered with water without the organization of the six days we're about to run into and that as the first movement of the creation activity of God in Genesis 1. I prefer this reading because Genesis 1, 1 through 2 is told to us in the perfect tense while Genesis 3, sorry, Genesis 1 verse 3 and following comes to us in the consecutive imperfect tense. Now, consecutive imperfect tense describes what was or what was done in a manner that is dependent on a sequence or a set of consecutive actions. So Genesis 1, 1 through 2, tells us that God made the heavens and the earth. And the earth at that moment was not organized or structured as it will be in verse 3 and following. God created the heavens and the earth, but then set about a specific pattern, plan, and process, sequence of events, in order to organize the earth in the specific days of Genesis 1-3 through 2-3. This reading does raise questions for us, though, about the first day of God's creative activity and when he made the heavens and the earth. So, can we read Genesis 1-1-2 to say that God created the heavens and the earth before day 1 in Genesis 1-3-6? Or can we say that Genesis 1-1-2 is part of the first day? Reading verses 1 and 2 as part of day 1 does not explain the shift in tense from perfect tense in verses 1 and 2 to the consecutive imperfect tense in verse 3 and following. The shift in tense seems to me to be emphasizing Genesis 1 and 2 as a first movement of God's creative activity and that it might be placed before the sequence of the days given the shift to consecutive imperfect, which starts the sequence of events that begins in verse 3. Now, this reading has a couple of implications for the rest of what we get into in Genesis 1 through Genesis 2, verse 3. First, it means the earth and the heavens may have been made outside of the framework of the days. Thereby not necessarily be able to be dated within those seven days. Second, it means that certain things God does on some of the days might be more about uncovering and organizing what was already manufactured and present before or at the beginning of day one because it's happened in verses one and two. Now, we're going to explore these a bit more as we proceed through Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. But really, what we've landed on is this. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, tells us that God has created past completed act with ongoing consequence, the heavens and the earth. That ongoing consequence becomes the sequence of events we get in the six days of God's activity and the seventh day of God's rest. So, interpretive moments then... Genesis 1, 1 and 2 is either the first movement of God's creative activity and it is part of day 1. Option 2, 
Genesis 1, 1 through 2 is the first movement of God's creation and it is before day 1. Or Genesis 1, 1 through 2 is a summative statement, a summary statement, a an introductory statement, a preview, if you will, of what is about to follow in verses 3 of chapter 1 all the way down to chapter 2, verse 3. We are going to explore these ideas, these interpretive models, and how Genesis uh, 1 has been read and understood the next time we are together. I hope this is helpful and gets us started well on our journey in Genesis 1. Have a good day, guys, and we'll talk the next time we're together on the podcast.